when the little man beats the big guy. There's something in all of us that loves that. I was watching over this past uh, couple of weeks a series on the television called Class of 92. I don't know if you've seen something of this. Five famous former footballers. That could be a tongue twister, that, couldn't it? Um, five Manchester United football players, multi-millionaires, all of them, have bought a local football team in Salford. And even though they're multi-millionaires, their dream is to see this little local football club grow and get promoted to become a professional club at the highest level. And after this series aired, it was on the past two Thursday nights, and I think the BBC must have scheduled that, but coincidentally, they reached the first round of the FA Cup for the first time. And on Friday night, their game was televised live on BBC Two. So all of the guys in their team had basically been at work all day. Some of them were plasterers. The manager of the team is a plasterer. They'd been at work all day, and then in the evening, they're live on TV playing a football match against a professional club. And they absolutely battered the pro team 2-0. And the joy and delight afterwards, the fans invaded the pitch. The players were jubilant. And one of the Manchester United players, Gary Neville, said, that was unbelievable, it puts faith back into you, it's what football is all about, I've not had a moment like that for a few years, this is a guy who won the Champions League, and he's kind of jubilant, I've not had a moment like that, the little guys smashed the big guys, and he was absolutely thrilled. Well, we're in the middle of this little series in the Old Testament book of Judges, Last week, we were introduced in chapter 6 to a man called Gideon. And here today, as we move on in the story, is an example, an amazing example of the little guy thrashing the big bully. I've entitled our time today, The Unlikely Battle. Um, As we did last week, it's quite a long chapter this so what we'll do is we'll we'll get into the the story and we'll read it bit by bit so that it if we read it all we'll have forgotten what we read one by the time we get to it so we'll do it in chunks um the background here is that god's chosen people the israelites have forgotten god they're worshiping false gods And so God disciplines them in a way and he allows them for a time to be overwhelmed and oppressed by their enemies nearby, the Midianites. In the early part of chapter 6, we looked at it last week so we won't recap too much, but for seven years they've been starving. And at last, after seven years, they cry out to God for help. And uh, I suppose last week we were asking, where is God when you need him? This week, I suppose, we're asking a different question. What does God do when you find him? Um, In this account, God raises up Gideon, the reluctant hero, to smash the Midianite enemy. And so I've entitled our talk today, The Unlikely Battle. What I want to do today is just finish off chapter 6. And just look, first of all, at Gideon's continuing relationship with God. 
And then we'll get into chapter 7 and we'll walk through the, the narrative of the battle and, and we'll close by making some applications to our own lives. When we read these Old Testament stories, the question I'm interested in is what, what difference does this make to our lives now, today, in Rotherham, in 2015? So let's, um, we'll split uh, by looking first of all before the battle. Just uh, read with me uh, in chapter 6 from verse 33. And uh, if, you, if, you, if you need um, a Bible, this, this, these church Bibles are around. Um, let's hear God's word together. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Verse 33 introduces a different year, but the same old, same old reality. All the enemy come and they camp in the valley of Jezreel and the people in the nation know what's coming next and they're thinking, let's run for the hills. This is the eighth year in a row that this bully has come. But this year, it is different. It is, it is very different. And I want you to notice the massive contrast, or a, a massive contrast in this section. First of all, just look with me under this heading, the transforming power of the Spirit of God. Look at verse 34. And it says there very simply, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he, and he blew a trumpet. When I, when I was at school, I, I learned to play the trumpet for three months, and I just couldn't get the hand of, like, you know, blowing the raspberries, you know. You, it just couldn't quite... I lasted three months, learned how to play, like, D and F or something, I don't know, and gave up. It's the only musical instrument I've ever tried to learn to play. No idea how kids have ended up so musical when I was a numpty at it. But uh, anyway, the spirit of the Lord comes on him and he blows the trumpet and it seems like almost the whole nation respond to his cry. This is the man who was threshing the wheat in a wine press last week 
This is the guy who had broken down his dad's altar to false gods at night because he was so frightened of what they might do to him the next day. And here he is in verse 34, and sorry for the pun with the party last night, he's on fire. The guy is emboldened, he's inspired. He has gone from frustrated wheat thresher to county-level trumpet blower overnight. And people respond to him in great numbers. I love the phrase here, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That is what made the difference. This year is different to all the previous seven years. Why? Because God shows up. The phrase is a hard one to translate into English. You'll know that the Bible was written in the Old Testament part of the Bible was written in Hebrew. This phrase, the Spirit of the Lord, came upon Gideon. In the original, it really has the idea within it of to clothe something. But it isn't what we might expect. It isn't really Gideon being clothed by the Spirit of God, although that sentiment is true in a sense. What, 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 it's, what, what is happening here is more that God, the invisible God, the Spirit of God, is coming to Gideon and putting him on like a coat. That's a slightly different idea, and it's a profound image. Gideon is almost like the human tool. that God, The invisible God comes to him, clothes him, t- t- takes him and puts him on, and uses him to change this whole situation. While the enemy is relaxing in the valley, perhaps even salivating at the prospect of another year's successful bullying, God intervenes and he does it by taking up this man Gideon, raising him up to become the one who delivers I think the thing for us to learn maybe from this part is that isn't it amazing that the eternal, invisible, almighty God can use ordinary people in his service. Gideon was in the beginning shy, reluctant, We even said last week, maybe even a little bit depressed, the whole nation is impoverished. And God comes to him to use him to make a difference. One writer I came across said this, God was not looking for the most courageous man in Israel. God was not looking for the greatest warrior or the most accomplished strategist. He was looking for a man who, knowing his own weakness would depend all the more upon God for divine strength. Such a man was one whose faith could grow. God is always looking for men and women who are available to him in that way. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. But the contrast, the paradox here, is that we also see, secondly here, the humanity of Gideon. Last week we saw that Gideon met God face to face. His dinner spontaneously combusted on the rock. He'd smashed his father's idols. He successfully called all of his fellow countrymen effectively to war. 
And then he goes to God in verse 36. And he's not sure. Does that strike you as quite human? Gideon goes to God after all these other things has happened. After his expert, spirit-filled trumpet blowing. After he's called all his countrymen to come and stand with him. And then privately he goes to God and says, If you will save Israel by my hand. It's almost like he's hesitating. So the transforming power of God's spirit comes on him. And yet at the same time he's frightened and worried and anxious. He'd experienced such power and yet mixed in with that there's uncertainty. I I love the fact that Gideon comes across here as so normal and human. Even weak. So I I don't just want to underline for you the fact that God can use people in his service. But also the fact that God can use real people with all of their frailties and weaknesses. And he can be at work through our personalities and temperaments. Even in our weaknesses. We are not so complex as to be of no use to him. We're not an enigma to him. God is not looking for superheroes. He's looking for people who will trust him and be obedient to him and be available to him. Before we look at the battle, I just want to pause and look at this strange episode with the fleece. Um, And I want to talk about Gideon's need for reassurance here. For some Christians who know the Bible, this story has become a very famous one. And sometimes you'll hear Christians talking about putting out the fleece like Gideon did. I I mean, what's the fleece? It, It sounds to me like he got one of his best lamb's wool jumpers and he puts it outside in the backyard and he says to God, if you really are going to save the Israelites by my hand. The lambs will jump it, will be wet, and the ground will be dry. And the next morning, I don't know what time his alarm went off, he goes outside, he picks his fleece up, and he wrings out a bowl full of water. And he thinks, wow, that's amazing. The ground was dry, the fleece is full of water. Then he goes back to God, because he's still not sure, and he says, and he reverses the thing and says, God... I'm still not sure. Tomorrow, if the ground is wet and the jumper's dry, then I'll really know that you're with me. And sure enough, the following day, it says that night, God did so. The fleece was dry. All the ground was covered in dew. What is going on here? I I think many Christians come to this little account And they are thinking really about the issue of God's guidance. How how does God guide his people? What, What should I be doing with my life? Am I doing the right thing? How can I know what God's will is for my life? And so many Christians come to this passage as an example of how to find guidance. I think sometimes it can be quite comical. 
Lord, if you want me to take this job, then let the third person who comes out of that door over there be wearing a red skirt. It's not quite putting out a fleece, but it's the same kind of idea. And then bizarrely, some overweight Scottish guy wearing a kilt with some red in it comes out of the door. And then we're thinking, hang on a minute, did I say red or did it have red in it? Um, did it have to be a skirt or does a kilt qualify as a skirt? You know, this, this kind of idea that we can somehow second guess God's will for us by looking at circumstances bizarrely. The problem is with that, that actually what happens is that what we really want comes through. So maybe we're kind of, you know, Lord, if you want me to get up out of bed today, then I will, I will. If a blue helicopter flies past my window, the truth is we don't actually want to get up. So we kind of stack the odds in our favor. I'm, I'm not sure that what's going on here is an issue of guidance. This, Gideon did not put this fleece on the floor because he wasn't sure what to do. Gideon isn't unsure about what God's will is here. He knows what God's told him to do. Ever, ever since the um, Lord appeared to him in the early part of chapter 6 and says, Hello, Rambo. And he's looking the other way, thinking, Who are you talking to? Is it someone else? God said to him in chapter 6, Go in the strength you have. I'm sending you to deliver my people from Midian's hand. I'll be with you. He knows what God's will is. He also knows that God has clothed him with power to call his countrymen. My point is, there's no lack of clarity here, is there? He's not confused about what he should do. What, he, what he's wanting is reassurance. Gideon needs courage, not clarity. And in his uncertainty, he goes to God and he's basically saying, God, give me some kind of miracle to prove to me that everything will turn out all right. I know what I should do. I'm not sure that it's going to work. Please show me. Look again at what Gideon says in verse 36. He says, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised. He knows what God's promised him. Later on at the end of verse 37, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. He's not, he's not had his fingers in his ears. He knows what God's told him to do. The problem is he's, he's suddenly in the face of the point of conflict, having cold feet. He wants to be sure. This is not an issue of guidance. This is an issue of reassurance. I, I think there are Bible commentators who've been a little bit hard on Gideon here. I don't see anywhere in this text where God rebukes him. Rather, God seems to graciously come right down to Gideon's level and grant him his request. It's almost as if God stoops to speak the language that Gideon will understand. 
he is very frightened and very nervous. And what he's really doing is going to God and saying, God, are you big enough? Do you really love me? How can I know that your promises to me will come true? He's human. He's frightened. But I think he leaves us an example here. And I just want to pause and reflect on this. I I think it's very easy in life for us to excuse ourselves by saying, I I didn't know what I should do. I, I didn't know. Nobody told me. When actually, I think deep down in our hearts, we often do know what we should be doing. The real issue is that we don't fundamentally believe that God will be with us and help us and enable us to do what we know we should be doing. So our lack of progress is not a lack of clarity. It is more of a lack of confidence in God and his promises. Does that make sense? And it is therefore no bad thing for us to ask God to teach us and show us and give us, in a sense, big thoughts of him. Will you, it, it isn't wrong to go to God and say, will you really be with me as you've promised to be? Do you really love me? Can I really count on you? There's a lovely story in the Gospels in the New Testament of a man, a dad, who comes to Jesus' disciples when Jesus is not there with his son who is somehow in the grip of some kind of evil. And the disciples haven't a clue how to deal with this boy. And then Jesus shows up and he comes to the dad and he says, bring the boy to me. And the man is desperate and he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus is like, if you can, if you can, Jesus says to him, everything is possible for him who believes. And the man then, in his desperate need, cries out one of the loveliest verses, I think, in the whole Bible. The man cries out to Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Does that resonate with you? In, in the older verse of the Bible, the verse says, I do believe, help thou my unbelief. How, how can you say, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief? What is that a mixture of? He's experiencing the power of Christ, and yet he's frightened and nervous and not sure whether God can really do. And he says, I do believe, I do believe, I want to believe. Please help me in my unbelief. Maybe that's the essence of Gideon's heart here. I do believe you, God, but at the same time, I'm frightened. Help me to overcome my unbelief. Show me that you really are big enough. This whole private episode before the battle is about reassurance. 
Can, can I just apply this to our own hearts? You do realize, don't you, that you don't need a fleece. You can keep your nice lambswool jumper on. Actually today, all of you have better than Gideon had. When you are asking in your heart, where is God? Does God really care for me? God doesn't give you a fleece. What he gives you, in a sense, I want to symbolize this, he gives you a table. And on that table, there's some bread and wine. And that bread and that wine, instituted by Jesus, point to the greatest demonstration of God's eternal love for you and me that you can possibly know. Does God love me? He sent Christ to die for me. I don't need a fleece. Will he be with me? Who can stop him? Would he lay down his life for me and then abandon me? My point to you here is that you cannot find an anchor for your heart in superstition. There is a lot of stuff that we don't know, but there are some really big things that we do know. And there's nothing to be gained from guessing who's going to walk out of which door first, wearing which coloured skirt, and trying to guess what God's saying to me and whether he loves me through some complicated system or even our up and down feelings. God does not always confirm his words and ways to us by satisfying our craving for a miracle. What he wants from us is that we trust him his word, his character, his faithfulness, his goodness, and to remember the big things that he has done. Sending his son into the world. How can I know that God loves me? I can know it, not through a fleece, but because God sent Jesus, who died and rose again to bring salvation. You can build your life on that. You don't need to put out a fleece. You actually have more than Gideon knew. You have a saviour who died for you and rose again and now lives with you and will be in you by his spirit. I think Gideon would say to us, stop doubting him and his goodness and believe that he is with you well all that happened before the battle even started let's um, keep that in mind and we'll have a little look at what happens next in the battle and then at the end we're going to try and apply it The narrative in chapter 7 basically splits into three parts, so we'll just skip through it in three sections. Okay? So chapter 7, first of all, oh, the battle unfolds. The army is reduced. 
Just read with me chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. Um, Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. And the Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I'll sift them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths, and all the rest got down on their knees to drink, basically putting their faces in the water. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So part one in this story, amazingly, is the army being reduced. Gideon and his men camp. They start getting ready for the battle with the Midianites. There are 22,000 men who have come to join Gideon. That's a reasonable sized army. The forces of the Midianites are massive. We'll come to that in a minute. It says later on that their army was like as thick as locusts. Too many to count. And God comes to Gideon and he says, Hey Gideon, the army of the Midianites is too big, mate. Hang on a minute. No, he doesn't. No, sorry. Gideon, your army's too big, mate. And he says, tell anyone who's scared that they can go home. Well, how many men was it who, got, who said they'd leave? Oh, sorry, 22,000 men left. So the army was 32,000, sorry. 22,000 men who were frightened said, okay, thanks a lot, I'm going home. 10,000 men left. Then they go down to the water. God says to Gideon, you still have got too many. And God basically said, I don't think there's any significance in this. God says, take the lappers and let the nailers go. So basically, those who lay down in the water, put their face in the water, they went. And all the guys who knelt down and kind of lapped the water up, God says, the stranger them will keep them. So God says to Gideon, you're going to go into battle with, a, with the enemy, the big bully who's been oppressing you for the last seven years, with 300 blokes. You might as well go into battle with water pistols. Let's read on from the end of verse 8. Under this heading, I want you to see that Gideon is encouraged by God. Right at the end of verse 8, there's a new paragraph that starts. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. 
During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they're saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was said. I don't know why I do that in a northern accent. I had a dream, he said. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. So God tells Gideon in the night to go down to the Midian camp, maybe in disguise, I don't know, and sneak about a bit. You get the picture. God says to him in verse 10, If you are afraid, (laughs) if you are afraid, (laughs) we've got 300 guys on our side, they've got millions of camels on their side, and you're asking me if I'm frightened. (laughs) Gideon goes down into the camp, God says to him, go and eavesdrop. Go and have a little listen in the camp and you'll be encouraged. And at that very point in the narrative, the the writer, the author, reminds us of the size of the Midianite army. He builds up the kind of narrative. So Gideon sneaks down, he overhears this conversation. One of the soldiers is leaning on a lamppost somewhere, talking to his mate, and he says, I had a dream last night. It was a really weird dream. It was a massive loaf of bread that smashed my tent. And dreams are often weird. I've done a lot of camping. But I've never, ever seen a loaf of bread knock a tent down. I, I, was this like a cartoon dream with like oversized loaf of bread rolling into the camp? Anyway, he sees a loaf of bread come down the hill and it flattens the tent. And then his friend says to him, this can only be Gideon. And, I mean, Gideon must have been stood there going, he he must have wanted to explode with joy, mustn't he? These guys know my name. These guys are frightened. They're actually not as powerful as they look. And in that moment, what? Gideon suddenly sees God's total sovereign control even over their enemies and sees at the same time that the enemy isn't actually as confident and sure of himself as he thought. Tim Keller in his commentary on Judges said this, I thought this was a great quote, quote, the things that stand opposed to us 
are not as strong as they often appear. Satan cannot force us to sin. The power of idols can be broken. And those who mock or persecute us are often conflicted and broken beneath their confident exterior. God graciously gives Gideon the opportunity to see this, that this vast army, as thick as locusts, underneath their armor have trembling hearts. God reassures Gideon very kindly because he knows what Gideon needs and Gideon responds, it says here in the text, by worshipping God. And then, as we'll see in a moment, in brilliant, decisive military action. And there's a nice pattern there in, in the sense that Gideon, first of all, he's worshipping God and then he gets on with doing something. It's a brilliant pattern. So the army's reduced. Gideon's encouraged. Then the battle is fought. They're the three sections in the narrative. Read with me. We'll just read to the end. Verse 16. This is an amazing their victory. This, this is this little guy smashing the big guy. You get the, the point. Dividing the 300 men into three companies he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside that's obviously not like torches with Duracell batteries in you like a fire with a jar and a trumpet watch me he told them follow my lead when I get to the edge of the camp do exactly as I do when I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. I feel like I want to shout that. For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow they shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon while each man held his position around the camp all the Midianites ran crying out as they fled when the 300 trumpets sounded the, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords the army fled to Beth Shittar through Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Mahola near Tabath, Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messages throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Interesting that the battle ends at a winepress and a rock. Irony, if you were here last week. 
where Gideon encountered God was in a wine press and by a rock. What an unbelievably stunning victory. 300 men smash whoever knows how many tens of thousands of men in one night with God's help. God reduces the army. He encourages Gideon. And now the moment of truth comes. This isn't a pretend. This is reality. There's a real battle still to be fought. And Gideon's no dummy. He comes up with a brilliant plan. And there's no hint in the text that God gave him this plan. I don't know whether that happened. But Gideon comes up with this plan. The significance of this is that the Midianite camp would have three separate watches through the night. So at any one time, a third of the men would be on guard and two-thirds of the men would be asleep in their tents. But just after a changeover, verse 19, just after the changeover, what you actually have is a third of the men walking back to their tents, a third of the men are just getting up, and the other third have just come on their shift. And at that exact moment, Gideon gets the men to smash their jars, to show the lights all the way around the camp. And there's utter pandemonium in the camp. The soldiers who are sleeping get up and look out of the tent to see men walking towards them in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, they're, they're at each other's throat. Ah, we're being attacked, we're being attacked. And they actually start fighting and killing one another. Some of them flee, the chase is on, others join in until eventually the leaders are captured and one is killed on a rock and the other in a wine press, which as we've said is a very ironic throwback to last week where, God, where Gideon encountered God. What, what can we learn from all of this? I've, I've tried to split the narrative into those three sections for this reason as God leads them into a battle that they must fight with God's help I think God is effectively saying three things to Gideon and I'll put these all on one slide God is saying three things to Gideon don't be smug don't despair but do fight does that make sense? let's just uh, finish with this application why did God reduce Gideon's army from 32,000 men down to 300 why, why would God do that well he tells Gideon in verse 2 chapter 7 the Lord said to Gideon you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands why in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people that anyone who's frightened can go home. What was God's motive in shrinking Gideon's army? God's motive in doing that was so that they wouldn't get to the end and think, we did it. You get that? God says to them, I don't want you to get to the end and boast that you have done this in your own strength. I want it to be crystal clear that the one who won this battle 
is me. I don't want you, Gideon, to get to the end of this battle or for the people to get to the end of this battle and to be sitting there feeling smug. Look at what we just did. How amazing are we? But secondly, Gideon, I don't want you to despair. On the other hand, the size of this task, the greatness of the enemy, the smallness of their army, you could understand if they'd just given up, caved in, gone home, paralyzed by fear. And yet, at the same time, God is wanting to encourage Gideon to save him from fear, to embolden and encourage his faith. So in a sense, the overall thrust of this narrative is Gideon, I I don't want you to trust in yourself, but I don't want you to be so frightened of the battle that you give up. I want you to fight without smugness on the one hand, and without fear and despair on the other. And I I, I don't know about you, I love this. The, The Bible is so brilliant in the balance that it portrays. And I, I think it's true for every one of you, every one of us. When God comes to you and calls you, it is very easy, isn't it, to have one or the other of these reactions. To be smug. I can save myself and I don't need God to do it for me. Or on the other hand, someone with a different personality might say, I can't save myself and God wouldn't want me anyway. Those two extremes are both missing God being with us. We were thinking about this last night a little This is exactly how all religion in the world works. Religion always says to us, if you can do this, then God will love you and accept you. And if you feel you can do it, you'll end up feeling smug. If you feel you can't do it, you end up feeling inferior, unworthy. And the problem with both of those extremes is they both focus on who? Me. Both extremes focus on what I can or can't do. And the great cry in this chapter, the great cry in Christianity is to look away from me, to stop obsessing about me and look to Jesus and what he has done. Which means, as we said last night, that Christianity, in a sense, is not religion. It is like a kind of third way in which God says to you, I do accept you because of what Jesus has done. Now do this with my help. Not because you have to, but because you can and because you want to now. Religion is always trying to earn something from God. And the problem with both of these extremes of smugness or despair is that they're still focused on me rather than on him when we're smug we're saying that we don't need Jesus when we're in despair we're really saying Jesus isn't enough for me 
in the Christian gospel. God gives Jesus to be our deliverer before we even knew we needed him. He lived the life that we haven't. And he died the death that we deserve. We didn't ask for it. God did it because he knows what we need. And he's kind. He brings salvation to us. Even though we don't deserve it. Jesus is God's answer. Coherent answer to the ultimate questions that we have. And I I, I want to suggest to you that there are resources here to help all of us to live the most balanced life of any person on the planet. Because on the one hand, the gospel will humble you and stop you from boasting because none of us can save ourselves. But on the other hand, it will exalt you and stop you from despairing because Jesus saves to the uttermost every single person who comes and trusts in him. Only the gospel can help you to be truly humble and truly confident at the same time. That's the real mark of a genuine follower of Jesus. Confident without being arrogant. Humble without being a despairing worm. Only Jesus can make that possible. But we still have to fight. You still have to come and do business with God. You still have to come and put your shoulder to the great struggle of life. But Christianity is not an impossible dream. And the story of this unlikely battle is that when the transforming power of God's spirit meets our broken humanity, there is always, always hope. When God says, as he said to Gideon, I will be with you, it changes everything. So don't be smug and self-reliant and don't despair and give up. Trust in Jesus and fight for his glory. Amen.